Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Origins. This is a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, anything really. If you're interested in everything and anything, come along and listen and enjoy the show. Visit my website for the show notes, www.origins.info. Looking for a podcast that's more challenging, more stimulating intellectually? Well, here's the place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. I'm so afraid, I'm so scared. Welcome to Origins, episode 13. This episode's entitled, The Gruesome Origins of Five Popular Fairy Tales. In this episode, the other stories are going to be, Sea Reptile is the biggest on record, Americans are changing faith at a rising rate, Machines to Match Man by 2029, More Static, Less Talk, Space Radio, The Doomsday Seed Bank Opens, Fish Can Count to Four, and not much more, Eight Nuclear Weapons That the US Has Lost, The Usual MindlessCrap.org Website, A Mysterious Pyramid Complex Is Found in Peru, Rusty Worms in the Brain, Prozac Does Not Work, Say Scientists, The Devil Toad Fossil, A Super Speed Internet Satellite Has Been Launched by Japan, Vikings in Oklahoma, Word Origins, and Weird Science Titbits and Oddities. Our first article is about the gruesome origins of five popular fairy tales. Number five, Little Red Riding Hood, Interspecies Sex Play and Cannibalism. The version you know. Mention the words fairy tale to someone. If they don't think of gingerbread houses or possibly a certain bar they know, they think of this story. Little Red on her way to grandmother's house to meet the bad wolf and stupidly tells him where she's going. So he gets there first, eats Grandma, puts on her dress and waits for Red. She gets there, they do the back and forth about what big teeth he has and he eats her. 
Then a passing woodsman comes and cuts Red and Grandma out of the wolf, saving the day. Well, what got changed? Most modern versions of fairy tales come from two sources, the Grimm brothers from Germany and Frenchman Charles Perrault, the collector of the Mother Goose tales. The big change they made to this one was the ending. That woodsman showing up seemed a little like a third act rewrite of a movie due to bad test screenings, didn't it? Where the hell did the woodsman come from? Well, the woodsman was a later addition to the tale. In the early versions of the story, Red and Grandmother are dead. Also, in most versions, the woodman cuts the pear out of the wolf's belly, where they're mostly none the worse for wear despite being eaten, which implies to us the wolf in that story world eats like some sort of python by unhinging its jaw and swallowing prey whole. Suspension of disbelief only goes so far. Much earlier versions also like to spice up the sexuality angle of the story by having Red out with the, out with the wolf by performing a strip tease for him while he's lying in bed dressed as her grandmother and then running away while he's distracted. Note to any young girls out there, if you are ever abducted and menaced by someone, do not do this. Wait, it gets worse. This is the most horrifying bit that got filtered out before the tale reached both the Grimm's and Perrault, and in fact only made it into a few written texts. In this version, the wolf dissects Grandmother, then invites Red in for a meal of her flesh, presumably with a side of fava beans and a nice shianti. Then he eats her too. Story's over. Sweet dreams, little Sally. Snow White, Prince Pedophile, More Cannibalism. The version you know. Well, you've all seen the movie, you know how it goes. Evil stepmum hates that her daughter is prettier than her, so she tells one of her men to take her out to the woods and kill her, and bring back her heart as proof. He can't follow through, so he tells her to run away and never return. Snow White flees, and she falls in with seven friendly dwarves. The stepmum finds out and sneaks her a poison apple. Snow White goes into a coma until a handsome prince rescues her and they live happily ever after. Well, what got changed? In the Disney film, the wicked stepmother winds up dead. She falls off a cliff. So that's pretty hardcore, we guess. It's got nothing on the grim version, though, where the stepmother is tortured by being forced to wear red-hot iron shoes and made to dance until she falls down dead. The issue of Snow's actual age is a point of contention as well. The Grimms explicitly refer to her as being seven years old when the story starts. And while there's no firm indication of how much time has passed, it's no more than a couple of years. So unless that's an eight-year-old Prince Charming who comes along and rescues Snow White, we're backing away from this one before we become the subject of a NBC reality show. The biggest change and the bloodiest is Stepmum's unusual eating habits. Namely, when she asks her man to bring back the heart of Snow White, she just isn't after proof that the girl is dead. She wants to eat it. Depending on the version of the story, the Queen asks for Snow White's liver, lungs, intestine and pretty much every other major internal organ, up to and including one gruesome version where she asks for a bottle of Snow White's blood stoppered with her toe. 
And if you think the fairy tales were gruesome back then, you should have seen the merchandising. Number three, Rumpelstiltskin, Dismemberment, Dead Toddlers. The version you know. There's never been a Disney version of this one, but you've probably heard it before. A miller has a beautiful daughter, whom he claims can spin straw into gold. A passing noble decides to call the miller on his lies and take the girl and locks her in a tower and tells her to get spinning, presumably hoping to cause a collapse in the precious metals market. Fortunately, she's helped by a little gnome who shows up and offers to help her in exchange for a small trinket. This goes on three nights, and by the third night the girl is promising the little man her first-born child in return for his help. On the third morning, the king decides to marry this pretty girl who can produce gold out of dry grass. They inevitably have a son, and the little gnome shows up demanding him, but being nothing if not fair... He'll give the girl three days to guess his name. If she can, she keeps the kid. She tries everything but comes up short until a passing woodsman overhears the gnome bragging about how he's so clever no one will guess his name is Rumpelstiltskin. He immediately tells the queen, who springs it on Rumpelstiltskin, who's so pinged off he throws a tantrum and runs away, presumably to ply his poorly thought-out scam in another town. Well, what got changed. In the Grimm Brothers version, taken from the oral tradition, the little man is so pinged off he stamps the floor in his little hissy fit and gets stuck. And then, like some insane version of a Will Ferrell skit, he pulls so hard to free himself that he tears himself in half. Now, if our names were Rumpelstiltskin and some dizzy miller's daughter had just told him the whole damn room, we'd be pinged off too. But we don't think we'd get dismemberment angry. Not to mention, in the really early versions of the tale, Rumpelstiltskin launts himself at the girl in a rage and gets stuck <clears throat> in her lady parts. Seriously. The palace guards all have to come and pull him out, which it must have made for some awkward looks afterwards. Also, in a depressingly large number of versions, the child is killed anyway, either by Rumpelstiltskin herself or the guards or someone. They weren't big on happy endings in the Dark Ages. Plague will do that to you. Well, what got changed? The first major departure in this from the version we know today is when the princess pricks her finger on her 15th birthday. In earlier versions, the princess instead gets a piece of flax caught under her fingernail, which pricks her and puts her to sleep. This might seem like a small difference, but it becomes important when you consider the other major and unsettling change to the story. Previous versions of the tale have the prince, who finds Sleeping Beauty, thinks she's so damn beautiful, he just goes ahead and has his way with her right there and then. Yes, while she's still comatose. If that's not disturbing enough, the coupling leads to a pregnancy, and the princess gives birth to twins, all while asleep. One of the babies, seeking mama's milk, sucks on her finger and dislodges the flax, waking her, at which point 
we imagine she may have a few questions. Number one. Cinderella. Mutilation, sex, more mutilation. The version you know. When they talk about fairy tale endings, they're almost certainly referring to this story, or possibly some sort of football game. This is the dream of every little girl, and some little boys, that one day they too can rise up from the dirt and become a pretty, pretty princess. You know it all. The stepmother and stepsisters who hate the beautiful Cinderella and make her work all day until one day a fairy godmother shows up and gives Cinderella pretty clothes and a pumpkin coach and sends her to the ball where she falls in love with the prince. But at the stroke of midnight it all ends and she runs home, leaving only her glass slipper behind. The prince searches the land, finds Cinderella, the shoe fits and they live happily ever after. Well, what got changed? This one goes way, way back, having been told across cultures for thousands of years before being made into numerous Hollywood movies. The identity of the fairy godmother changes often, and in fact she only showed up in Perrault's version, along with the pumpkin coach and the mice attendants, who were all used in the Disney version. There's even a Chinese version of this story from around 850 AD, where Ye Hsien is given gold, pearls and dresses, and food, by a giant talking fish. A famous difference in many versions of the story is the glass slipper. Authorities on fairy tales disagree about whether Perrault's slipper was made of glass or fur, as the words in French, ver, V-E-R-R-E, and ver, V-A-I-R, respectively, are pronounced almost the same. One thing Perrault left out that the Grimms delighted in putting back in was the violence. The sisters, desperate to fit in the slipper, mutilate their own feet, cutting off the toes and heels, all described in exquisite Germanic detail. When the prince eventually realises Cinderella is the one for him, birds peck out the sisters' and mother's eyes for their wickedness. You can probably understand why Disney went with the Perrault's version for an adaptation. Don't want a four-leaf clover Don't want an old horseshoe I want your kiss cause I just can't miss With a good luck charm like you Come on And be my little good luck charm Ah, uh -huh, you sweet delight I want a good luck charm Hanging on my arm To have, to have, to hold, to hold tonight Just wanna hold you tonight And the following story I did cover in my www.bazaarbazaar.info website and the podcast associated with that, but it also fits into this Origins podcast. So if you didn't hear it in the other one, here's the story again. Washington. A frog the size of a bowling ball with heavy armour and teeth lived among dinosaurs millions of years ago, intimidating enough that scientists who unearthed its fossils dubbed the beast Beelzebuffo or Devil Toad. But its size, 10 pounds and 16 inches long, isn't the only curiosity. Researchers discovered the creature's bones in Madagascar, yet it seems to be a close relative of normal-sized frogs who today live half a world away in South America, challenging assumptions about ancient geography. 
The discovery led by paleontologist David Krauss at New York Stony Brook University was published Monday by the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. This frog, if it has the same habits as its living relatives in South America, was quite voracious, Krauss said. It's even conceivable that it could have taken down some hatchling dinosaurs. Krauss began finding fragments of abnormally large frog bones in Madagascar off the coast of Africa in 1993. They dated back to the late Cretaceous period, roughly 70 million years ago, in an area where Krauss also was finding dinosaur and crocodile fossils. But only recently did Krauss's team assemble enough frog bones to piece together what the creature would have looked like and weighed. The largest living frog, the Goliath frog of West Africa, can reach seven pounds. But Krauss teamed with fossil frog experts from University College London to determine that Beelzebuffo isn't related to other African frogs. It seems to be a relative of South American horned frogs. Popular as pets, they're sometimes called Pac-Man frogs for their huge mouths. Like those modern frogs, Beelzebuffo had a wide mouth and powerful jaws plus teeth. Skull bones were extremely thick with ridges and grooves characteristic of some type of armour or protective shield. The name comes from the Greek word for devil, Beelzebub, and Latin for toad, Bofo. The family link raises a paleontology puzzle. Standard theory for how the continents drifted apart show what is now Madagascar would have long ago separated by ocean from South America during Beelzebuffo's time, and frogs can't survive that long in salt water, Krauss noted. He contends the giant frog provides evidence for competing theories that some bridge still connected the land masses that late in time, perhaps via an Antarctica that was much warmer than today. And now a story from the guardian.co.uk website. Prozac, used by 40 million people, does not work, says scientists. And this is by Sarah Bosley, the health editor. Prozac, the best-selling antidepressant taken by 40 million people worldwide, does not work, nor do similar drugs in the same class, according to a major review released today. The study examined all available data on the drugs, including results from clinical trials that the manufacturers chose not to publish at the time. The trials compared the effect on patients taking the drugs with those given a placebo or sugar pill. When all the data was pulled together, it appeared that patients had improved, but those on placebo improved just as much as those on the drugs. The only exception is in the most severely depressed patients, according to the authors. Professor Irving Kirsch from the Department of Psychology at Hull University and colleagues in the US and Canada. But that is probably because the placebo stopped working so well, they say, rather than the drugs having worked better. Given these results, there seems little reason to prescribe antidepressant medication to any but the most severely depressed patients unless alternative treatments have failed, says Kirsch. 
This study raises serious issues that need to be addressed surrounding drug licensing and how drug trial data is reported. The paper published today in the journal PLOS, Public Library of Science, Medicine, is likely to have a significant impact on the prescribing of the drugs. The National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, NICE, NICE, already recommends that counselling should be tried before doctors prescribe antidepressants. Kirsch, who was one of the consultants for the guidelines, says the new analysis would suggest that the prescription of antidepressant medications might be restricted even more. The review breaks new ground because Kirsch and his colleagues have obtained for the first time what they believe is a full set of trial data for four antidepressants. They requested the full data under Freedom of Information rules from the Food and Drug Administration, which licenses medicines in the US and requires all data when it makes a decision. The pattern they saw from the trial results of Prozac, Serozac, Efexor and Cezone was consistent. Using complete data sets, including unpublished data, and a substantially larger data set of this type than has previously been reported, we find the overall effect of new generation antidepressant medication is below recommended criteria for clinical significance, they write. Two more frequently prescribed antidepressants were omitted from the study because scientists were unable to obtain all the data. Concerns have been raised in recent years about the side effects of this class of antidepressant. Evidence that they could prompt some young people to consider suicide led to a warning to doctors not to prescribe them for the under-18s, with the exception of Prozac, which was considered more effective than the rest. In adults, however, the depression-beating benefits were thought to outweigh the risks. Since its launch in the US in 1988, some 40 million people have taken Prozac, earning tens of billions of dollars for the manufacturer, Eli Lilly. Although the patent lapsed in 2001, fluoxetine continues to make the company money. It is now the active ingredient in Serafem, a pill sold by Lilly for premenstrual syndrome. Eli Lilly was defiant last night. Extensive scientific and medical experience has demonstrated that fluoxetine is an effective antidepressant, it said in a statement. Since its discovery in 1972, fluoxetine has become one of the world's most studied medicines. Lilly is proud of the difference fluoxetine has made to millions of people living with depression. A spokesman for GlaxoSmithKline, who makes Cerazat, said the authors had failed to acknowledge the very positive benefits of the treatment and their conclusions were at odds with what had been seen in actual clinical practice. He added, This analysis has only examined a small subset of the total data available, while regulatory bodies around the world have conducted extensive reviews and evaluations of all the data available. And this one study should not be used to cause unnecessary alarm or concern for patients.
And another medical story from the Fizorg.com website, Rusty Worms in the Brain. Iron is vital to human life. For example, it is a compound of haemoglobin, the substance that makes our blood red and supplies our cells with oxygen. However, iron can also cause heavy damage. It is thought that iron deposits in the brain contribute to certain forms of neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's, Huntington's and Alzheimer's. A malfunction of the blood transporter transferrin may be to blame. A team led by Peter J. Sadler at the University of Warwick in Coventry in the UK and Sandeep Verma of the Indian Institute of Technology, Kanpur, India, has now been able to show that transferrin can clump together to form worm-like fibrils. As reported in the journal Agwanti Kimi, this process releases rust-like iron particles. Within the body, iron is present in the form of iron ions, with a threefold positive charge, and must always be well wrapped to prevent it from reacting with proteins and causing damage. In blood plasma, iron is carried in the pockets of the iron transport protein transferrin. It only gets unwrapped once it is inside special cellular organelles. But things can go wrong in this system, as Sadler and his colleagues have now proven. The researchers deposited iron-loaded human transferrin onto various surfaces under conditions that emulate those in living organisms. By using microscopy and electron microscopy, the researchers showed that the proteins aggregate into long worm-like fibrils. These worms have a regular striped pattern. The narrow dark stripes contain something similar to rust. Within the fibrils, the ion ions are no longer properly enclosed, explains Sadler. Instead, they aggregate into periodically arranged nanocrystals whose structure seems to be very similar to the iron oxide mineral lepidocrosite. The researchers suspect that in certain forms of neurodegenerative disease, iron deposits may form in a similar fashion in the brain. Such ion crystals are highly reactive and could lead to the formation of toxic free radicals, which attack and destroy nerve cells. If this assumption can be verified in vivo, agents that hinder the aggregation of transferrin may be the foundation for a new family of drugs. Now to some archaeological news from the National Geographic News website. Mysterious pyramid complex discovered in Peru. The remnants of at least 10 pyramids have been discovered on the coast of Peru, making what could be a vast ceremonial site of an ancient little-known culture, archaeologists say. In January, construction crews working in the province of Perua discovered several truncated pyramids and a large adobe platform. 
officials from Peru's National Institute of Culture were dispatched to inspect the discovery. Last week they announced that the complex, which is two miles long and one mile wide, belonged to the ancient vicious culture and was likely either a religious centre or a cemetery for nobility. The vicious culture was a pre-Hispanic civilization that flourished in Peru's northern coastal desert from about 200 BC to 300 AD and is known for its decorated ceramics. Experts say little is known about the culture because its sites have been heavily looted over the years. We found several partial pyramids, at least ten, said Cesar Santos Sanchez, chief archaeologist for the INC's Piroa division. We also found a large adobe platform that we speculate could have been used for burial rituals, but we cannot know without further testing. The platform, measuring 82 feet by 98 feet, was found alongside one of the larger pyramids in the complex. Another of the larger pyramids contained some artefacts as well as bone fragments from a human skull. The fact that the skull fragments were found several metres below the surface, indicating a deep grave that took much time to dig, prompted researchers to theorise that the individual buried there had high social status. Santos added that the complex is surrounded by four large hills. We think that is because of its geographic location, the complex could have been a place of strategic value, Santos said. The area containing the pyramids is surrounded by a cemetery that has been looted by grave robbers. But the complex itself is intact, Santos said. The Vishkas are very interesting but so poorly understood, given that most of what we know about them is through looted ceramic art, said Steve Bourget, an archaeologist at the University of Texas at Austin. This could be an important find because it is one of the few with monumental architecture, but it is too soon to tell. Experts say the Vishkas ceramic style is similar in some respects to that of the Moki, a fact that has spawned research on the relationship between the two cultures. The Moki civilization flourished in areas south of the Vishkas from about AD 100 to 750, producing intricately painted pottery as well as gold ornaments, irrigation systems and monuments. The two cultures thrived within a relatively short distance of each other, less than the distance between Los Angeles and San Francisco, experts point out. It is possible that the Vishkas for the part of its history was closely affiliated with the Moki culture, said Joanne Pillsbury, an archaeologist at the Washington DC-based Dumbarton Oaks, a research institute affiliated with Harvard University. The discovery of the Vishkas pyramids comes as perceptions about the Moki have shifted, she added. It was once thought that the Moki was a single monolithic state, but people don't think that is true anymore, Pillsbury said. It was likely a series of regional or multi-valley kingdoms that shared a broader culture, and Vishkus was probably part of that sphere of interaction. For something a little bit lighter, the origins of some popular sayings. Number one, eating humble pie. The phrase which means to eat your own words or humiliate yourself refers to what the British used to call the humbles or lesser parts of an animal, these include the heart, liver, kidneys, etc. Not exactly the greatest things to eat. Ah, my wife's favourite meal for breakfast, eggs benedict. 
Banker and yachtsman E.C. Benedict inherited a Connecticut fortune and began spending more time on the water than in his office. While on his yacht sometime around 1902, Benedict insisted that hollandaise sauce be added to his poached eggs on toast with ham. When guests tried the new delicacy, they fell in love with it and named it after the inventor. Eggnog. There's nothing tricky about this term. It's a combination of egg and nog, which was a strong ale in the time of the Revolutionary War. The ale represented the alcoholic ingredient that has since been replaced by wine, rum, cider and other spirits. Easy Street. This expression comes from a 1902 novel called It's Up To You. One of the more prosperous characters could walk up and down Easy Street. It seemed logical to describe a person in comfortable circumstances as having an address that summarised his lifestyle. To earn one's salt. In the days of the Roman legions, a soldier received part of his pay in the form of a salarium, a salary, which was actually an allowance for the purchase of salt. Salt wasn't easily obtainable in those times, and the Roman generals knew the mineral's value. Any soldier who didn't earn this small allowance was deemed worthless. Ex lax. The product's name is short for excellent laxative. Whoop, I'll leave it there. From the www.mentalfloss.com blog's archive, Eight Nuclear Weapons the U.S. Has Lost? by Eric Sass. During the Cold War, the United States military misplaced at least eight nuclear weapons permanently. These are the stories of which the Department of Defence calls broken arrows. America's stray nukes with a combined explosive force 2,200 times the Hiroshima bomb. If you don't have enough to make you lose sleep at night, listen on. Stray number one into the Pacific. February 13, 1950. An American B-36 bomber en route from Alaska to Texas during a training exercise lost power in three engines and began losing altitude. To lighten the aircraft, the crew jettisoned its cargo, a 30-kiloton Mark IV, or Fat Man, nuclear bomb, into the Pacific Oceans. The conventional explosives detonated on impact, producing a flash and a shockwave. The bomb's uranium components were lost and never recovered. According to the USAF, the plutonium core wasn't present. Let's hope so. Stray number two and three, into thin air. March 10, 1956. A B-47 carrying two nuclear weapon cores from MacDill Air Force Base in Florida to an overseas air base disappeared during a scheduled air-to-air refuelling over the Mediterranean Sea. After becoming lost in a thick cloud bank at 14,500 feet, the plane was never heard from again and its wreckage, including the nuclear cores, were never found. Although the weapon type remains undisclosed, Mark 15 thermonuclear bombs, commonly carried by B-47s, would have a combined yield of 3.4 megatons. Strays number four and five, somewhere in a North Carolina swamp. January 24, 1961. 
A B-52 carrying two 24-megaton nuclear bombs crashed while taking off from an airbase in Goldsboro, North Carolina. One of the weapons sank into the swampy farmland and its uranium core was never found, despite intensive search to a depth of 50 feet. To ensure no one else could recover the weapon, the USAF bought a permanent easement requiring government permission to dig on the land. Stray number six, the incident in Japan. December the 5th, 1965, an A-4E Skyhawk attack aircraft carrying a one megaton thermonuclear weapon, or hydrogen bomb, rolled off the deck of the USS Ticonderoga and fell into the Pacific Ocean. The plane and weapon sank in 16,000 feet of water and were never found. Fifteen years later, the US Navy finally admitted that the accident had taken place, claiming it happened 500 miles from land in the relative safety of the high seas. This turned out to be not true. It actually happened about 80 miles off Japan's Ryuku Island chain, as the aircraft carrier was sailing to Yokosuka, Japan, after a bombing mission over Vietnam. These political revelations caused a political uproar in Japan, which prohibits the US from bringing nuclear weapons into its territory. Strays 7 and 8 250 kilotons of explosive power. Spring 1968. While returning home to base in Norfolk, Virginia, the USS Scorpion, a nuclear attack submarine, mysteriously sank about 400 miles southwest of the Azores Islands. In addition to the tragic loss of all 99 crew members, the Scorpion was carrying two unspecified nuclear weapons, either anti-submarine missiles or torpedoes, that were tipped with nuclear warheads. These could yield up to 250 kilotons of explosive power, depending which kind of weapon was used. Where I start to realise that you are gone Every morning I wake up without the sun My whole body and my heart are going numb It hits me like a snow I want you back one day This is all I can say I'll wait for you, I swear But this is hard to... From the bbc.co.uk website Hmm, this sort of smacks of the uh, Terminator movies, this article. Machines to Match Man by 2029 by Helen Briggs, who's their science reporter. Machines will achieve human-level artificial intelligence by 2029, a leading US inventor has predicted. Humanity is on the brink of advances that will see tiny robots implanted in people's brains to make them more intelligent, said Ray Kurzweil. The engineer believes machines and humans will eventually merge through devices implanted in the body to boost intelligence and health. It's really part of our civilization, he explained. But that's not going to be an alien invasion of intelligent machines to displace us. Machines were already doing hundreds of things humans used to do, at human levels of intelligence, or better, in many different areas, he said. I've made the case that we will have both the hardware and software to achieve human-level artificial intelligence with the broad suppleness of human intelligence, including our emotional intelligence, by 2029, he said. 
We're already a human-machine civilization. We use our technology to expand our physical and mental horizons, and this will be a further extension of that. Humans and machines would eventually merge by means of devices embedded in people's bodies to keep them healthy and improve their intelligence, he predicted. We'll have intelligent nanobots go into our brains through the capillaries and interact directly with our biological neurons, he told the BBC News. The nanobots, he said, would make us smarter, remember things better and automatically go into full emergent virtual reality environments through the nervous system. Mr Kurzweil is one of 18 influential thinkers chosen to identify the great technological challenges facing humanity in the 21st century by the US National Academy of Engineering. The experts include Google founder Larry Page and genome pioneer Dr Craig Venter. The 14 challenges were announced at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in Boston, which concludes on Monday. And another story from the bbc.co.uk website and science section. This is by Paul Rincon, one of their science reporters. A fossilised sea monster unearthed on an Arctic island is the largest marine reptile known to science, Norwegian scientists have announced. The 150 million year old specimen was found in Spitsbergen in the Arctic island chain of Svalbard in 2006. The Jurassic-era leviathan is one of 40 sea reptiles from a fossil treasure trove uncovered on the island. Nicknamed the monster, the immense creature would have measured 15 metres or 50 feet from nose to tail. And during the last field expedition, scientists discovered the remains of another so-called pleosaur, which is thought to belong to the same species as the monster, and may have just been as colossal. The expedition's director, Dr Jean Hurram, from the University of Oslo Natural History Museum, said the Svalbard specimen is 20% larger than the previous big and biggest marine reptile, another massive pleosaur from Australia called Kronosaurus. We have carried out a search of the literature, so we know now that we have the biggest pleosaur. It is not just arm-waving anymore, Dr Hurram told the BBC News website. The flipper is three metres long with very few parts missing. On Monday we assembled all the bones in our basement and we amazed ourselves. We had never seen it together before. Pleosaurs were a short-necked form of plesiosaur, a group of extinct reptiles that lived in the world's oceans during the age of dinosaurs. The pleosaur's body was teardrop shaped with two sets of powerful flippers which it used to propel itself through the water. These animals were awesomely powerful predators, said the plesiosaur paleontologist Richard Forrest. If you compared the skull of a large pleosaur to a crocodile, it is very clear it is much better built for biting. By comparison with the crocodile, you have something like three or four times the cross-sectional space for muscles, so you have much bigger, more powerful muscles and huge, robust jaws. A large pleosaur was big enough to pick up a small car in its jaws and bite it in half. There are a few isolated bones of huge pleosaurs already known, but this is the first find of a significant portion of a whole skeleton of such a giant, said Angela Milner, associate keeper of paleontology at London's Natural History Museum.
It will undoubtedly add much to our knowledge of these top marine predators. Pleosaurs were reptiles and they were almost certainly not warm-blooded, so this discovery is also a good demonstration of plate tectonics and ancient climates. 150 million years ago, Svalbard was not so near the North Pole. There was no ice cap and the climate was much warmer than it is today. The monster was excavated in August 2007 and taken to the Natural History Museum in Oslo. Team members had to remove hundreds of tonnes of rock by hand in high winds, fog, rain, freezing temperatures and with the constant threat of attack by polar bears. They recovered the animal's snout, some teeth, much of the neck and back, the shoulder girdle and a nearly complete flipper. Unfortunately, there was a small river running through where the head lay, so much of the skull had been washed away. A preliminary analysis of the bones suggests this beast belongs to a previously unknown species. The researchers plan to return to Svalbard later this year to excavate the new pleosaur. A few skull pieces, broken teeth and vertebrae from this second large specimen are already exposed and plenty more may be waiting to be excavated. It is a large one and has the same bone structure as the previous one we found, says Espen Knutson from Oslo's Natural History Museum, who is studying the fossils. Dr Hurram and his colleagues have now identified a total of 40 marine reptiles from Svalbard. The hall includes many long-necked plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurus, in addition to the new pleosaurs. Long-necked plesiosaurs are said to fit descriptions of Scotland's mythical Nockness monster. Ichthyosaurs bore a passing resemblance to modern dolphins, but they used an upright tail fin to propel themselves through the water. Richard Forrest commented, Here in Svalbard you have 40 specimens just lying around, which is like nothing we know. Even in classic fossil exposures, such as you have in Dorset in England, there are cliffs eroding over many years, and every so often something new pops up. But we haven't had 40 pleosaurs from Dorset in 200 years. The fossils were found in a fine-grained sedimentary rock called Black Shale. When the animals died, they just sank to the bottom of a cold, shallow Jurassic Sea and were covered over by mud. The oxygen-free alkaline chemistry of the mud may explain the fossil's remarkable preservation, Dr Hurram said. The discovery of another large pleosaur was announced in 2002, known as the Monster of Aramberi, and the site in northeast Mexico where it was dug up. The creature could be just as big as a Svalbard specimen, according to the team that found it. But paleontologists told the BBC a much more detailed analysis of these fossils was required before a true picture of its size could be obtained. If you'd like to see links to these articles or pictures of the, even the creatures we were just talking about, if you go to my website, www.origins.info, you'll see links to all the websites from today's stories. I'd also like to thank the Podsafe Music Network for some of the music in today's episode. If you have any questions or you'd like to email me links to story that you've found that might be suitable for Origins, you can email me at paulrex at paulrex. Dot com. That's P-A-U-L-R-E-X at paulrex.com. 
If you'd like to give me some feedback via iTunes or the TalkShoe websites, just go to either of those and type Origins, O-R-I-G-I-N-Z, into their various uh, search engines and you'll come up to with my links in those places. Um, you can give me a star rating on iTunes and, or you can even do one similar in uh, TalkShoe or if you'd like to leave me a comment or some uh, constructive criticism, uh, that'd be great. Uh, I'd really appreciate it if you get a chance to do it. And uh, a little bit of an offbeat story from Firefox News. Vikings in Oklahoma, and this is by Tracy Morris. Heaven a runestone, proof of a directionally challenged Norseman? These days you could say that Heaven a Oklahoma is off the beaten track. The town which sits nestled under the Poteau Mountain is a little out of my cell phone range. So risking breakdown without the help of AAA feels like an adventure. But if I feel a little lost in the wilds of Oklahoma, how much more lost would the Vikings have been if they had indeed settled here? It sounds a little bit like a plot of a Hollywood movie starring Antonio Banderas, but residents of Heavener maintain that around 900 AD, Vikings paddle their longships down the eastern seaboard, around the tip of Florida, through the Gulf of Mexico, up the Mississippi and Arkansas rivers, and then travelled overland into eastern Oklahoma, where they put up a billboard. OK, they may have built settlements and plant crops, but none of those things have been found. What has been found is a large flat stone, 12 feet high, 10 feet wide, 16 inches thick, rectangular in shape and sitting in a mountaintop ravine, with 6 inch high Norse runes carved deeply into it. Translations of the runes vary. Some people maintain that there are date, November 11, 1012, while others say they read Gloam's Valley as either a land claim or a kind of early Viking graffiti. Whether Vikings actually were in Oklahoma, they came and left long ago, and the evidence that they were here might have lived on in obscurity if not for a few key events. Flash forward in time to 1838, when thousands of Native Americans were forcibly moved from Tennessee into eastern Oklahoma. The new arrivals noticed the stone, which became known as Indian Rock by European settlers, even though the carvings were not recognised by anyone as either native or Latin writing. In the 1920s, a Heavener resident sent copies of the runes to the Smithsonian for identification. The museum wrote back to say that the writing was Norse, but that it didn't make sense for Norsemen to have made them. In all likelihood, museum officials reasoned, a Scandinavian settler must have made the carvings by working from a primary school grammar book from his homeland. As settlers moved into the area, they found more and more of these engraved stones. However, most of them were destroyed by treasure hunters. The same fate might have been fallen the runestone if it was not for the efforts of Gloria Farley, a local schoolteacher. Farley researched and wrote extensively about the stone. 
Through her efforts, the name of the stone was changed from Indian Rock to the Heavener Runestone, and the Heavener Runestone State Park was established. Eventually, she found four more examples of Viking runes carved into the Oklahoma landscape. Some of these are now on display in the Heavener Runestone State Park. So, did Vikings settle in rural eastern Oklahoma? Authorities in history say no. What is known, however, is that Norsemen did establish settlements in Newfoundland and similar stones with runic writing have been found in Minnesota. More importantly, stranger things have happened. In 1939, two fishermen pulled a small bull shark out of the Mississippi River near Alton, Illinois, about 1,750 freshwater miles outside of its natural habitat. If a shark can be thousands of miles away from where it's supposed to be, why not a Viking? From the dailygreen.com we get the story of the Doomsday Seed Bank opens this week. Arctic Vault will preserve crops threatened by global warming and disasters both man-made and natural. The Arctic Doomsday Seed Vault will open this week according to the Press Association. The Svalbard Global Seed Vault is the world's insurance policy on a host of threats that could destroy important crops from global warming and war to natural disasters like flood and wildfire and drought. The vault's initial repository will include 250,000 varieties, or about 10 million seeds, from virtually every country in the world, according to the association. All that can be seen of the vault outside the mountain is a concrete wedge, inside which a 410-foot tunnel goes deep into the hillside, ending in three vaults with air-locked doors, keypad entry, stone and plastic-impregnated concrete walls, the association reports. The air has been cooled to between minus 18 and minus 20 degrees centigrade, but Norwegian meteorologists have calculated that without power, the vaults will still be below freezing 200 years from now under the worst climate change scenario. Fish can count to four, but no higher. And this is written by Charles Clover, who is the Environment Editor for the telegraph.co.uk website. Fish can count, according to scientists, who have found that North American mosquito fish have the ability to count up to four. Previously, it was known that fish could tell big shoals from small ones, but researchers have now found that they have a limited ability to count how many other fish are nearby. This means that they have similar counting abilities to those observed in apes, monkeys and dolphins, and humans with very limited mathematical ability. Christian Agrillo, an experimental psychologist at the University of Padua in Italy, said, We have provided the first evidence that fish exhibit rudimentary mathematical abilities. Last year, he and his colleagues showed that if a female mosquito fish is harassed by a male, she will try to avoid his attentions by seeking solace in the largest nearby shoal, demonstrating that the fish can tell bigger shoals from smaller ones. 
The team first conducted a series of experiments to see whether a lone mosquito fish would prefer to join a shoal between two and four others. The results published on the BBC Worldwide Natural History site, loveearth.com, show that females preferred to join shoals that were larger by just one fish significantly more often consistently preferring shoals of four fish rather than three fish and consistently preferring shoals of three fish over those containing just two. A second series of experiments revealed the fish's ability to process larger numbers. The fish were not able to directly count over four but they were able to distinguish between larger numbers if they differed by a ratio of two to one. For example, the fish could distinguish between a shoal of 16 compared to a shoal of 8 others, but they could not tell the difference between a shoal of 12 compared to a shoal of 8, a ratio of 3 is to 2. This demonstrates that fish are able to visually estimate larger numbers, but not very accurately. Professor Angelo Visaza, who led the latest research, said that fish's numerical abilities were actually on a par with the numerical abilities of monkeys and human infants between 6 and 12 months old, who were both able to visually count small numbers and less accurately estimate larger ones. Adults use a third counting mechanism, in which they verbally count much larger numbers. Dr. Agrillo said, the most interesting thing is that fish performance is very similar to what is observed in adult humans, who possess a very limited vocabulary for numbers. For example, speakers of the Amazonian language, Mandaruku, lack words for numbers beyond five. Their limits in quantity tasks closely resemble what we found in pre-verbal organisms such as fish, he added. A variety of animals, including pigeons, parrots, raccoons, ferrets, rats, monkeys and apes, are, to varying degrees, capable of either counting, adding or subtracting numbers. Most need to be trained to do so. Without training, adult rhesus monkeys are capable of subtracting small numbers and are capable of representing the number zero. Wild lions apparently have a rudimentary ability to count. When a pride of lions hears the roar of an approaching lion, then two or three females, rather than a lone greeter, will always go out to meet the stranger. But if two approaching lions can be heard, the resident females send out four of their own. And an interesting story from the CNN.com technology website. Superspeed internet satellite blasts off in Japan. Japan launched a rocket on Saturday carrying a satellite that will test new technology that promises to deliver super high speed internet service to home and businesses around the world. The rocket carrying the WINDS, W-I-N-D-S satellite, a joint project of the Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency, or JAXA, and Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, lifted off its pad at 5 to 6 in the afternoon. If the technology proves successful, subscribers with small dishes will connect to the internet at speeds many times faster than in what is now available over residential cable or DSL services.
The Associated Press said the satellite would offer speeds of up to 1.2 gigabytes per second. The service initially would focus on the Asia-Pacific region close to Japan, a JAXA news service release said. Among other uses, this will make possible great advances in telemedicine, which will bring high-quality medical treatment to remote areas, and in distance education, connecting students and teachers separated by great distances, JAXA said. The rocket was launched from Japan's Yoshinobu Launch Complex at Tanigashima Space Center. Now a story from the New Yorkstimes.com. Americans change faiths at a rising rate, report finds. Washington. More than a quarter of adult Americans have left the faith of their childhood to join another religion or no religion, according to a new survey of religious affiliation by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. The report, titled U.S. Religious Landscape Survey, depicts a highly fluid and diverse national religious life. If shifts among Protestant denominations are included, then it appears that 44% of Americans have switched religious affiliations. For at least a generation, scholars have noted that more Americans are moving among faiths as denominational loyalty erodes. But the survey based on interviews with more than 35,000 Americans offers one of the clearest views yet of that trend, scholars said. The United States Census does not track religious affiliation. The report shows, for example, that every religion is losing and gaining members, but that the Roman Catholic Church has experienced the greatest net losses as a result of affiliation changes. The survey also indicates that the group that has had the greatest net gain was the unaffiliated. More than 16% of American adults say they are not part of any organised faith, which makes the unaffiliated the country's fourth largest religious group, in inverted commas. Detailing the nature of, a, of religious affiliation, who has the numbers, the education, the money, signals who could hold sway over the country's political and cultural life, says John Green, an author of the report, who is a senior fellow on religion and American politics at Pew. Michael Lindsay, Assistant Director of the Centre on Race, Religion and Urban Life at Rice University, echoed that view. Religion is the single most important factor that drives American belief, attitudes and behaviours, said Mr Lindsay, who had read the Pew Report. It is a powerful indicator of where America will end up on politics, culture and family life. If you want to understand America, you have to understand religion in America. In the 1980s, a general social survey by the National Opinion Research Centre indicated that from 5 to 8% of the population described itself as unaffiliated with a particular region. In the Pew survey, 7.3% of the adult population said they were unaffiliated with a faith as children. That segment increases to 16.1% of the population in adulthood, the survey found. The unaffiliated are largely under 50 and male. Nearly one in five men say they have no formal religious affiliation compared with roughly 13% of women, the survey said. The rise of the unaffiliated does not mean that Americans are becoming less religious, however. Contrary to assumptions that most of the unaffiliated are atheists or agnostics, most describe their religion as nothing in particular. 
Pew researchers said that later projects would delve more deeply into the beliefs and practices of the unaffiliated and would try to determine if they remain so as they age. While the unaffiliated have been growing, Protestantism has been declining, the survey found. In the 1970s, Protestants accounted for two-thirds of the population. The Pew survey found they now make up about 51%. Evangelical Christians account for a slim majority of Protestants, and those who leave one evangelical denomination usually move to another, rather than to mainline churches. To Professor Stephen Prothero, large numbers of Americans leaving organised religions and large numbers still embracing the fervour of evangelical Christianity point to the same desires. The trend is toward more personal religion and evangelicals offer that, said Mr Prothero, chairman of the religion department at Boston University, who explained that evangelical churches tailor many of their activities for youth. Those losing out are offering impersonal religion and those winning are offering a smaller scale. Megachurches succeed not because they are mega, but because they have smaller ministries inside. The percentage of Catholics in the American population has held steady for decades at about 25%, but that masks a precipitous decline in native-born Catholics. The proportion has been bolstered by the large influx of Catholic immigrants, mostly from Latin America, the survey found. The Catholic Church has lost more adherents than any other church, and about one-third of the respondents raised Catholic said they no longer identified as such. Based on the data the survey showed, this means that roughly 10% of all Americans are former Catholics. Immigration continues to influence American religion greatly, the survey found. The majority of immigrants are Christian and almost half are Catholic. Muslims rival Mormons for having the largest families and Hindus are the best educated and among the richest religious groups, the survey found. I think politicians will be looking at this survey to see what groups they ought to target, Professor Fathiro said. If the Hindu population is negligible, then they won't have to worry about it. But if it is wealthy, then they may have to pay attention. Experts said the wide-ranging variety of religious affiliation could set the stage for further conflicts over morality or politics, or new alliances on certain issues, such as religious people have done on climate change, or Jews and Hindus have done over relations between the United States, Israel and India. It sets up the potential for big arguments, Mr Green said, but also for the possibility of all sorts of creative synthesis. Diversity cuts both ways. And are now for some word origins. The name Canada is from the Iroquois Kanata, meaning town or village. The name appears in August 1535 journal of the explorer Jacques Cartier in reference to the Iroquois village at the site of the present-day Quebec City that was the home to the chief Donnacona and also in reference to the wider region inhabited by Donnacona's people. By the 1540s, French maps were referring to the region as Canada. By the early 17th century, the name had become established in English as well.
Well, um, after that little weird thing, we'll do some more weird things. Weird science titbits. If we could only plug into it, a cloud-to-ground bolt of lightning carries between 100 million and 1 billion volts. It can reach 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit, three to four times hotter than the surface of the sun. Patching the ever-growing hole. There are lightning strikes somewhere on Earth 100 times a second, and every time lightning strikes, it generates ozone gas. This strengthens the ozone layer in the upper atmosphere. You know, the one with the big hole that heightens our need for sunscreen? If it floats, it must be a witch. The density of the planet Saturn is lower than water, so if you could put it in the ocean, it would float. Yet, despite all that water. Our own planet Earth is the densest in the entire solar system. It would definitely sink. How not to build a wooden ship. The black ironwood tree has wood so dense that it can't float on water. How to build a ship of rock. So, instead of black ironwood, how about volcanic pumice? It's less dense than water, so it can float. That's heavy, man. If a piece of a neutron star the size of a dime landed on Earth, it would weigh about 100 million tonnes. Bad choice for campfire wood. The bark of the giant redwood tree is fireproof. In fact, redwoods depend on fire to clear room for their growth and to enrich the forest soil for seeds to sprout. How to reach escape velocity without explosives. The acceleration rate of a flea jumping off a dog is 20 times the acceleration of the space shuttle doing launch. Hmm. I wonder if JPL can reverse engineer that. What did he say? Radio waves travel so much faster than sound waves that a person listening to a campaign speech by radio broadcast can hear the words 18,000 kilometres away before a person sitting at the back of the convention hall where the politician is speaking. And the uh, final article from today comes from damninteresting.com. Space radio. More static, less talk. And it's written by Alan Bellows. Owing to radio's aptitude in transporting information, our planet is endlessly peppered by man-made low-frequency radiation. Phone conversations, computer data, text messages, radar echoes, sitcoms and morning DJ chatter are all electromagnetically belched in every direction at the speed of light, including straight up into outer space. Purveyors of science fiction are fond of exploring the ramification of this radio leakage, suggesting that someday an advanced alien race might materialise to befriend, enslave or destroy humanity after a little electromagnetic eavesdropping from afar. Indeed, if there happen to be any radio-savvy civilizations within 114 light-years of Earth, an area which encompasses roughly 15,000 stars, humanity's earliest meaningful transmissions will have already reached them.
Similar speculation appears in science non-fiction, such as the SETI project, which strains its giant radio ears for extraterrestrial signals. When consulting the wisdom of probability, one finds that the universe ought to be teeming with technology-toting aliens. But aside from a couple of interesting but inconclusive detections, no discernibly intelligent patterns have ever been observed by Earth's space-listening instruments. One might surmise that the conspicuous silence is evidence of absence, but such a conclusion might be a bit premature under the circumstances. Outer space, as it was aptly put by the late Douglas Adams, is vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big. Astronomy's most up-to-date observations and calculations number the stars in the visible universe at somewhere around 70 sextillion, or 7 times 10 to the 22nd power, an incomprehensible value which is seldom welcome in polite company. This figure is so formidable that any attempt to scale it for human consumption results in such impotent analogies as ten times as many stars as grains of sand on all of the world's beaches and deserts, or ten trillion stars for every man, woman and child on earth. At least 200 billion of these stars reside within our own 13 billion year old galaxy, along with millions or billions of planets and moons. Considering the abundance of potential habitats and the amount of time our galaxy has been around, it seems inconceivable that our ordinary planet is the only one which has produced intelligent, signal-radiating life. Even if a solar system's odds of developing intelligent life is only one in a billion, that means the Milky Way should be home to 200 or so past or present civilizations, in addition to some 70 billion amongst the other galaxies. In 1950, famed physicist Enrico Fermi was one of the first to popularise the discrepancy between probable and observable life in the universe. While lunching with colleagues and discussing the notion of interstellar neighbours, Fermi summed up the question by wondering aloud, where is everybody? Thereafter, the inconsistency was known as the Fermi paradox. The paradox is a product of science's mediocrity principle. The observation that the Earth seems to be an ordinary planet orbiting an ordinary star within an ordinary galaxy. It follows therefore that Earth-like planets are probably somewhat common. In 1961 a collection of ten distinguished scientists and engineers known as the Order of the Dolphin set upon a quest to remedy this astronomical shortcoming in our knowledge. They pondered the possibility of employing massive radio telescopes to scan the sky for strange extraterrestrial signals, a concept which eventually evolved into SETI. During these early discussions, astronomer Dr. Frank Drake first described a formula which effectively estimates the number of technologically advanced civilization within the galaxy at a given time. To this day, the Drake equation remains as a framework for extraterrestrial speculation. There is much fist-shaking and spittle-making debate regarding most correct inputs, but as we gradually increase our knowledge of the universe, our guesses for these values become increasingly educated. Even when using somewhat conservative inputs, the Drake equation illustrates that our own humble galaxy is probably home to at least one other advanced civilization at present, along with the lingering physical and electromagnetic remains of many others.
Massive radio telescopes have scoured the sky for such alien signals, including efforts by the Big Ear Observatory in Ohio, the Very Large Array in New Mexico, and the famous Arecibo Observatory in Puerto Rico, the largest single aperture telescope ever constructed. In 47 years of single signal seeking, SETI twice detected signals of possibly intelligent origins. The WOW signal in 1977 and radio source SHGB02 plus 14A in 2004. Both had plausible earthly explanations, so science must assume for now they were not of extraterrestrial origin. The failure to find any stray radio evidence is taken by some as an indication that there may be indeed something special about our planet and its location in the cosmos. The rare earth hypothesis is the antithesis to the mediocrity principle, suggesting that complex life requires an extremely uncommon combination of astrophysical and geological events and circumstances. A slightly tilted planet with just the right chemistry, a large moon, a suitably metallic sun and an orbit at just the right distance. The hypothesis also advances the notion that there is a narrow galactic habitable zone where radiation levels are survivable, rogue meteors are few and gravitational perturbations from neighbouring stars are negligible. If all life relies upon such factors, then rare earth resolves the Fermi paradox. The hypothesis carries the faint odour of anthropomorphic bias, however, since it assumes that all complex life must be very like humans. All these factors aside, there is one additional daunting obstacle which complicates any effort to tune into intergalactic radio. Even if the universe is thick with signal-slinging civilizations, including some old enough that their indiscriminate electromagnetism has had sufficient time to reach Earth, not even the most massive and sensitive equipment of science is currently capable of plucking the signal from the static. When any non-focused electromagnetic signal is generated, such as a television broadcast or a cell phone conversation, the energy propagates as a spherical wave front at the speed of light. When a sphere is doubled in diameter, its surface area increases by a factor of four. But in a spherical wave, the surface area is the energy itself. This means the signal's energy is spread over four times more area at twice the distance, resulting in a 75% loss in intensity. To put it another way, in order for a broadcasting tower to double its effective range for a given receiver, it must quadruple its transmitting power. To demonstrate the degrading effect of distance on an everyday omnidirectional signal, one might imagine a spacecraft equipped with an Arecibo-style radio receiver directed towards the Earth. If this hypothetical spacecraft were to set out for the interstellar medium, its massive 305 metre wide dish would lose its tenuous grip on AM radio before reaching Mars. Somewhere en route to Jupiter, the UHF television receivers would spew nothing but static, and before passing Saturn, the last of the FM radio stations would fade away, leaving all of Earth's electromagnetic chatter well behind before leaving our own solar system. If a range-finding radar beam from Earth happened to intersect the ship's path, it would be observable from a much greater distance, though its short duration and smooth Gaussian meaninglessness would make it an inconclusive detection 
much like the WOW signal and radio source SHGBO2 plus 14A. A highly focused beam, such as that used to communicate with space probes, would also remain detectable for some distance beyond the edge of the solar system. If, hypothetically, a, a race of extra-intelligent extraterrestrials happen to reside in the nearby Alpha Centauri star system, b, they happen to broadcast a 5 megawatt UHF television signal, and c, we were fortunate enough to be pointing the mighty Arecibo telescope directly towards the source when it arrived four years later, we would still be unable to enjoy the zany capers of the Alpha Centauri equivalent of Mork and Mindy. In order to detect such a signal from this relatively proximate star, a dish with a diameter of 33,000 kilometres would be required. Even the very long baseline interferometry to link two Arecibo-style telescopes on opposite sides of the planet, thereby providing a virtual radio telescope the size of the entire Earth, our antenna area would still be 20,244 kilometres too small. By coupling the laws of probability with our best current observation, we can be reasonably confident that some fraction of the 76 trillion star systems in the visible universe are home to radio-sending species. It may indeed be that our planet is subjected to an unending spray of alien TV and radio signals, though they'd be attenuated beyond our best hardware's receiving extremes. Unless we dramatically improve our interstellar listening skills or some alien race makes a specific and vigorous attempt to send us a message, there is little chance that we Earthlings will be trading messages with our astronomical neighbours anytime soon. That brings us to the end of Origins episode 13. If you'd like to contact me, remember it's paulrex at paulrex.com. If you could leave some feedback on iTunes or the talkshoe.com website, it would be much appreciated. Bye for now. Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.